Well, thank you. It's good to just have just a couple points of, of reference as we enter into uh, the the stuff for today. Um, so I've I've got a lot that I will share, and hopefully we'll have some time for some conversation as we get towards the end. Um, as we begin, I'll, I'll share a few stories with you of people and their experiences of church. People and their experiences of church. The first is someone named Tony, grew up in a comfortable middle-class Christian family. He had a deep and rigorous faith, wanting to know God, wanting to follow God. His parents died when he was still young. And around the age of 18, the church no longer seemed to really be a place that he connected with. He felt like he wanted something different or something more from life. So he left the church. And he left the place where he had grown up. That's Tony. Another story. Cynthia grew up in a very well-off Christian family. They were part of a large Christian community with some big Christian schools around. Uh, She was taught the importance of good values and morals as she grew up. But during her life, this popular Christianity that she was surrounded with began to lose its focus. As it became more popular, it also became more diluted, just regular part of the culture, blending in with the rest of the world around it. So Cynthia, longing for more, also left the church. And then there's Glenn. Glenn worked for a parachurch organization, had a robust ministry, and one day a pastor came to visit him to gossip about a controversial theological issue of the day. We have a few of those, right? And as he was talking to him, uh, you know, trying to gain Glenn's support and allegiance on, on this topic, but Glenn saw right through these words and told him, go talk to someone else. I don't want anything to do with that. The pastor left frustrated by the encounter, went on to continue using his position to manipulate people in the church around this issue. On another occasion, this same pastor invited Glenn back to his church and once more tried to get him to play into that whole church politics game. And Glenn once again refused and was pushed out of the church. Do any of these stories sound familiar to you? Can you think of people who have left the church? People who are unsatisfied with the church? Can you think of corrupt leaders who use their power and influence for their own gain? often leaving a trail of wounded people behind them. It seems like we hear more and more stories like this every day. Now, these stories of Tony and Cynthia and Glenn could easily have been pulled from social media in the last year or so, could easily have been featured in the latest issue of Christianity Today, or could have been pulled from some of the folks that I meet with in the spiritual direction. 
have experienced some of these same things. But these stories that I'm telling you actually come from the 3rd, 4th, and 5th century. Glenn is better known as Abba Galatius. He lived in the mid-5th century, served as the abbot of a monastery, and opposed a corrupt bishop known as Theodosius the Heretic. Cynthia is better known as Amma Syncletica. She lived in the 4th century. After Christianity became legal and began to blend in with much of the anxious and materialistic culture of Rome. She left the church of her upbringing and went to live a life of prayer in the tombs. One of her family tombs. She moved in, uh, sold everything else that she owned, and eventually gathered a small community of women who together sought God in prayer outside of the established church. And then there's Tony. Tony is better known as Abba Anthony the Great, who lived in the 3rd and 4th century. One day, he heard in church the reading, sell what you possess and give to the poor. And he did it. He sold most of his belongings, gave away the proceeds, and then another time came to church and heard the reading from the Sermon on the Mount. Don't be anxious about tomorrow. So he finally decided, I'm going to sell everything else that I have. I'm going to go out into the desert and I'm just going to live one day at a time wholly devoted to God. And though he was not the first to do this, go out into the desert, he would eventually come to be known as the father of all the desert mothers and fathers. The founder of monasticism, Abba Anthony the Great. And beginning here in the 3rd century on into the 4th and 5th, Hundreds, even thousands of men and women began leaving their homes and leaving their churches to go into the desert, seeking lives of prayer and devotion to God and one another. What might have appeared to be a church crisis? People are leaving. Where are they going? actually became a foundational spiritual movement that would sustain the vitality of Christian faith throughout the corruption and controversy of the Middle Ages, also often referred to as the Dark Ages, for a reason. These monastic outposts beyond the established church, outside of culture, would hold on to this deep love of God. But it probably didn't look like that at first. What I want to suggest here today is that we may very well be in the middle of something just like this right now. At our time and culture and the place where we are, we may very well be in the middle of something just like this. We continue hearing about people leaving church. 
Words like deconstruction or exvangelical are making their way into mainstream religious vocabulary. And now, to be fair, there are those who leave the church because they have rejected Christian faith. Uh, there are those who don't believe in God, who just uh, don't know whether there is a God or not, and would rather not bother with religion, right? There are folks in that camp, but I'm telling you, there are many people who don't leave church because they reject Jesus. Rather, they leave church because they love Jesus and they can't find him in the church. These are not people who reject God and the gospel but people who desperately desire God and want to follow Jesus, but have not found him in the church. Russell Moore, author, now editor of Christianity Today, wrote an exceptional article a couple of years ago about this phenomenon called Losing Our Religion. You can look it up online. It's worth reading the whole thing. But here's an excerpt. He says that due to moral failings, corrupt cover-ups, and constant politics in the church, the problem now is not that people think the church's way of life is too demanding, too morally rigorous, but that they have come to think that the church doesn't actually believe its own moral teachings. If people reject the church because they reject Jesus and the gospel, we should be saddened, but not surprised, right? Jesus said people would reject him. But what happens when people reject the church? Because they become convinced that the church actually rejects Jesus and the gospel. What if people don't leave the church because they disapprove of Jesus, but because they've read the Bible and have come to the conclusion that the church itself would disapprove? Of Jesus. He concludes by saying, We are losing a generation not because they are secularists, but because they believe that we are. You see, after Christianity was legalized in Rome in the year 312, the church suddenly became an acceptable center of power. It was no longer on the margins, right? It was, hey, this is not only okay, this is a, became a necessary part uh, of the culture. And because of that, it began to embrace the culture in order to receive that power that was now available to it. And much the same can be said today of the church in America. Many churches come across as simply comfortable country clubs or rock concerts with celebrity pastors who live in mansions or maintain social media followers. The term evangelical, originally just simply meaning good news people, which is a good thing, has now come synonymous with a political voting bloc. Christians have embraced political power and influence at the expense of Christ-like character and faithful witness. And folks who actually are looking to follow Jesus 
look at this landscape of church and come to the conclusion none of this has anything to do with the life and teachings of Jesus. None of this has anything to do with the death and resurrection. None of this has anything to do with the kingdom of God that he constantly proclaimed. And so people looking for genuine faith become disillusioned, hurt, and leave the church. Now, through my work as a spiritual director, meeting with people, I've gotten to know some folks who've lived these stories. And I'm telling you, they are not people who are embittered with a vendetta against the church. Many of them would actually love to be part of a church again, but are either still healing from the wounds of their past church experience or simply have not been able to find a church that's really focused on Jesus and not just caught up in the culture wars of today. And so I've come to see some of these people as a new kind of desert mother or father. They've left community and they've left the church because they're seeking the kingdom of God. Because they're actually trying to follow Jesus. Now, I want to shift focus for just a moment. What are you seeing in your own churches? What is your church like? Is it smaller and more sparse than ever before? Is it losing power and influence in the community? Many churches find themselves in this place. A recent Gallup poll showed that the church and general religious affiliation has dropped below 50% in America for the first time in history, right? Churches are entering a kind of wilderness place, and it can often feel very discouraging and disheartening and uncertain. Believe me, I know. But what I want to suggest is that the wilderness is exactly the right place for us to be. Isaiah 43, 19 says, I am making a way in the wilderness, streams in the wasteland. This wilderness place is the very place that the desert mothers and fathers actually pursued. It's the place they actually sought out. They weren't forced into it by cultural shifts. They chose to go into the wilderness. They sensed God calling them into the wilderness. Amma Sincletica said, Just as it is impossible to be at the same moment both a plant and a seed, so it is impossible for us to be surrounded by worldly honor and at the same time bear heavenly fruit. We can't have power and influence and also be wholly devoted to the kingdom of God. The loss of worldly success actually means we are ripe for the fruit of the kingdom of God. That's what the wilderness tells us. 
Another influential desert father called Abba Arsenius sought the way of salvation. He was a tutor to royal <coughs> heirs, right? He had a powerful, influential, successful, comfortable position in life and no reason to leave it. But here's his story. While still living in the palace, Abba Arsenius prayed to God in these words, Lord, lead me in the way of salvation. And a voice came to him saying, Arsenius, flee from men and you will be saved. Having withdrawn to the solitary life, he made the same prayer again. And he heard a voice saying to him, Arsenius, flee, be silent, pray always. For these are the sources of sinlessness. Flee, be silent, pray always. These are the sources of sinlessness. The way of salvation is found in the wilderness. That's the testimony of these desert mothers and fathers. Now, where did they learn this way of life? Where did they get this idea of going into the wilderness, of, of retreating into the desert. Well, the story of Jesus begins like this. Mark chapter 1, if you're one of those folks who likes following along, you can turn there. Mark chapter 1. The beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the wilderness. Prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. And so, John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. John the Baptist prepared the way for the Lord as a voice calling in the wilderness. It's so strange. It doesn't make any sense. You would expect the way of the Lord to be prepared in Jerusalem, in the temple, maybe in Rome even, right? If you really want to have some, some influence, or at least in synagogues, right? Local expressions of people of faith, but, but no, John began preparing the way as a voice calling in the wilderness. Quiet, remote, obscure, not a place of power, not a place of influence. And from what we know in Luke's gospel, John actually should have been a priest in the temple, right? That place of religious influence. His father was a priest his mother also came from a priestly line that stretched all the way back to Aaron, the very first high priest of Israel. John could have easily had a very promising, successful, influential religious career as a priest. But instead, he was called to be a prophet. And yet, even as a prophet, 
He could have gone to places of political and spiritual influence to get his message out. City centers, religious gatherings, right? We see prophets doing this throughout the Old Testament. But no, he goes to the wilderness. He goes to the wilderness. And the wilderness was not only the place where he conducted his ministry, it's also the place where he grew up. The end of Luke chapter 1 speaks of John after his birth saying, The child grew became strong in spirit, and he lived in the wilderness until he appeared publicly to Israel. John didn't go out into the wilderness just to begin his ministry. He lived in the wilderness long before he began any kind of public ministry at all. You see, before he prepared the way for the Lord in the wilderness, he was prepared by the Lord in the wilderness. The wilderness is a place that forms us into the kind of people God wants us to be. The wilderness is this formative place. As we keep reading in Mark, we see that John was not only a voice calling people out from, from the wilderness, he was also calling people to the wilderness, away from the frenzy and the distraction of culture and the pressures of everyday life. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him, it says in verse 5, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. He calls them out into the wilderness and they, they come. Right? They go out into the wilderness. He calls them to forsake the way of the world and they do, confessing their sins, being baptized. Mark continues in verse 6, John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. What a character. And this was his message. After me comes the one more powerful than I. The straps of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And so John wore a shirt made of hair. He ate bugs, and he lived in the wilderness, right? He's clearly not phased by popular trends. He is not trying to keep up with the times. He could care less about that He's clearly not trying to build his platform or become the next big influencer, right? He's simply pursuing God in the wilderness and pointing to the one who was to come. And isn't that who we're supposed to be as God's people? Not people seeking to build big churches and influential ministries, simply people who wholeheartedly seek after God and point others in the way of Christ. That's what John did. This is the essence of the desert mothers and fathers of whom John the Baptist was a prototype, the first of the desert fathers. So John is there out in the wilderness. He's pointing people to Jesus, and then, well, guess who shows up? Jesus. Jesus enters the scene. Verse 9, at that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. 
right? So Jesus joins those going out into the wilderness. He also comes to the wilderness and he's baptized by John. And look at what happens next, verse 10. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open, the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. This is what the wilderness is all about. This is the foundation of the wilderness way. And it's the thing that we're talking about all week long. The foundation is this, the love of God. The love of God. I said just a minute ago, the wilderness is a place that forms us into the kind of people God wants us to be. And the kind of people he wants us to be is a people filled with the Spirit, relying on his love. The wilderness is not a place where we put in our time in order to earn God's love. It's the place where the love of God that always has been is revealed most clearly. Notice the Gospel of Mark, right? We started in verse 1, so so far we've read everything that Mark has told us. Not much has happened, right? Particularly, Jesus has not done anything at all. He showed up and was baptized in the wilderness. He's not preached any sermons. He has not performed any miracles. He hasn't fasted and prayed for 40 days. That's coming up next. This means that Jesus did not do any of those things in order to be loved by God. Rather, he did those things flowing from this moment because he was loved by God. He went into the wilderness and the voice of God spoke, you are my beloved. And it is out of that love, out of that belovedness, Everything else flows. Jesus does not do anything to earn his Father's love. He does everything because he is loved by the Father. That's how we are meant to live. That is who we are meant to be. This is foundational for life with God. You are loved. You are loved more than you could ever know, and you can do nothing to earn it. It's already been freely given. You are loved, loved all the way down to the bottom, as we heard last night, right? I often ponder this question, how would you live differently if you sincerely believed that the truest thing about you is that you are deeply loved by God. How would you live differently if you sincerely believed the truest thing about you before anything else is that you are deeply loved by God? I think that would change some things about how we live, how we minister, Your value is not dependent on the size of your church. 
It's not dependent on the quality of your preaching. It is not dependent on the effectiveness of your ministry. You are truly, deeply loved by God. This is the foundation of the wilderness way. Going into the wilderness strips all those other identities, all those other things off of us, so this one thing remains. You are deeply and truly loved by God. Alma Sinclitica put it this way. She says, whatever is useful springs from love and ends in it. Whatever is useful springs from love and ends in it. Salvation, then, is exactly this, the twofold love of God and neighbor. Do our ministries spring from love? Do we start in that place of God's overflowing love? Does our life and work spring from the foundational reality, you are my beloved child with whom I am well pleased? This is the foundation of all. So John began in the wilderness. Jesus went out, joined him in the wilderness, and the love of God has been revealed. That's it, right? Finally done with this wilderness thing? No. Mark continues in verse 12. At once the Spirit sent him out into the wilderness. So let's go further into that desolate place. Verse 13, And he was in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals, and angels attended him. What comes next is a journey even deeper into the wilderness. Even further into those hard places where it feels like there's no influence, where there's literally no one around. And this description of wilderness is not all love and peace and kumbaya. There are wild animals around. I've heard it said, you're not in the wilderness unless you might get eaten. That's when you know you're in the wilderness. Um, there's temptations. There's Satan. Many stories of the desert mothers and fathers, I don't have time to share them, involve confronting temptations, literally battling out with demons. There's a famous painting of Abba Anthony uh, that depicts him being viciously attacked and torn at by demons all around. Uh, you can look it up. Uh, it's, it's disturbing uh, and startling, um, but it's this picture of the, the desert warfare uh, that occurs. And Jesus also faced temptation in the wilderness. But all of this temptation, all of this battle, all of this can be overcome with that deep, immovable foundation of love. The love of God can overcome all of these things. And Jesus' temptations show us even more of what it looks like to embrace the wilderness way. Matthew and Luke tell us what 
uh, he was tempted by, how, how he was tempted. It says he was tempted to turn stones into bread. He was tempted to jump from the pinnacle of the temple. He was tempted to bow down to Satan in order to receive all the kingdoms of the world. Henry Nouwen describes these as the temptations to be relevant, the temptation to be spectacular, and the temptation to be powerful. Turn these stones into bread, right? In the wilderness, nothing is more relevant than bread. Irrelevant. Jump off the pinnacle of the temple, right? Pull a great spectacular thing. You know, do a stunt. Get people's attention. Jesus says no. Do what you can to grab power, right? Get some influence in the world. Jesus says no. These temptations to be relevant, spectacular, and powerful are the very things that we're tempted to in our churches and ministry, aren't they? We need relevant activities. We need spectacular programs. And though we don't say it outright, we want our churches and ministries to be powerful, to be influential. Jesus did not embrace these temptations into the compulsions of the world. Instead, he journeyed deeper into the wilderness, saying, Away from me, Satan. And even through the rest of Jesus' ministry, as he returns to public life, he continues this wilderness way. If you jump down in Mark chapter 1 to verse 35, after a busy night of ministering to people, it says very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. And people were looking for him and couldn't even find him. Where'd he go, right? He's out in the wilderness, in a solitary place place. Throughout his life in ministry, Jesus continues living the wilderness way, not giving in to the pressures of his culture, his times, or even the pressures of his ministry to be successful, to have as much influence as possible. He constantly returns to the loving embrace of his Father, Thank goodness you have sabbatical, right? Mm. What if we lived that way? Constantly returning to the wilderness place of God's love. What if we led and ministered this way? What if our churches were little wilderness places? Places where people can go to detox from the cultural messages that we're constantly bombarded with and instead rest in the love of God. This might be possible for willing to embrace this wilderness way. So what might wilderness ministry look like today? What does it look like to embrace the wilderness? Our, our church in federal way has been exploring this for the past few months, and I sent out an email to our folks and said, hey, I'm sharing the stuff we've been learning together at Pepperdine. Tell me what you think, and I'll share it with them. So here's some, some responses I got from members of our church. 
One woman wrote, I was a backpacker for 25 years, and I utilized my time in the wilderness to cleanse my soul and get things back into perspective to what was really important. So learning from the desert mothers and fathers has really spoken to me. We were doing some daily readings from the desert mothers and fathers. She said, I would be very eager to get up out of bed and read the next entry. I couldn't wait. And I decided I like starting the day with the Lord. And so I've continued with different readings. Someone else wrote, The wilderness examples of John the Baptist and the desert mothers and fathers has helped me feel less alone as I've sensed my connection to a much larger story and tradition of faithfulness and obscurity, worship in the wasteland, water in the desert. Someone else shared that they've, they've received insights of simple obedience and the joy of dwelling in the here and now with God. Someone else said They've learned we don't have to be flashy. People were drawn to Jesus and John the Baptist because the message, the truth, and because they made people feel known. I want us to be a church where people feel known. Someone else shared, God sees and hears us. We need to detox from our culture and turn our eyes to God. Solitude can be a preparation for being in community. We need to embrace humility and avoid spectacle. And they said, pursue the wilderness, especially when life is busy. Hmm. Someone else shared, the wilderness way has brought my attention to the nature of there being a wilderness. It is real. It is lonely but it is a place where God has gotten my attention. And for that alone, it's been worth exploring. And finally, one more person wrote, wrote this uh, beautiful thing. It was uh, quite like a paragraph, but I'm going to read it. They wrote, Jesus' example of retreating regularly is inspiring and gives me permission to disengage from the world for a time and plug into God. The true challenge is walking with the awareness of God in every moment and in every place. I think time in the wilderness is a great place to discover our Father God and be released into that presence. It's also a great place to process those moments of being with others in the scriptures with the loving presence of God as I look back at them. The wilderness may be my true home. It's available to all. You can't really take anything of the world into it other than yourself. It's a great place to leave your ego, your pain, your weakness, and find humility, strength, peace, unending love, and joy. The call of the wilderness is joy. The joy of uniting with God, the joy of forgiveness, restoration, sanctification, the joy of walking with the Trinity as a beloved and grateful child. The joy of bringing the presence of God with us into the world. Wow. These are some of the things that folks in our church have 
and learning and receiving, and it's beautiful. The wilderness has a lot to give. So I want to say a few more things. I know we're almost at the end of our time. But just to offer you some, some, some ideas or some thoughts, I want to come back to the words that drew Abba Arsenius out into the desert. <clears throat> Flee. Be silent. Pray always. If we follow in these footsteps, we will also be able to become communities of integrity, presence, and wisdom. These things, I believe, are deeply needed in the world today and things many people are actually looking for, wanting, right? So first, flee. This call to flee means that we no longer need to try to be like the culture around us, right? So many churches have tried to imitate culture in order to catch and keep people's attention. We do this with music. We do this with branding. We do this with entertainment. Last week, I was at a different kind of gathering, a pastor's retreat in Colorado, and I was sitting at a dinner table talking with this youth pastor. And he, he was saying that he felt like his job description is basically just to entertain teenagers. And he said, I, I, what I want is to teach them to pray. Like, I want to teach them to follow Jesus, to, to love and serve each other, but, like, if we're not doing some goofy game, it doesn't matter, right? I feel like I just need to keep their attention, and that's what the church expects of me. We do this in all kinds of ways in our churches. We take the stones of culture and try to turn them into bread, Right? We want to make a memorable spectacle so everyone goes away remembering it. Uh, we want to have power and influence. Churches have been modeled over history after palaces, after classrooms, after theaters, after concerts. Ministers have been molded after CEOs, celebrities, or influencers. We've learned to measure success because we've looked at all of these things and how they measure success. But I want to suggest, what if we modeled our churches and our ministry not after these things in the world, but after people who were actually deeply seeking God? What if we modeled our churches and our ministries after the desert mothers and fathers? What if they were our North Star? Next to Jesus himself, of course. We might look crazy, but Abba Anthony already spoke to that. He said, a time is coming when men will go mad. The world's going to go crazy. And when they see someone who is not mad, they will attack him, saying, you're mad because you're not like us. Are we willing to look crazy in a world that's crazy? so that we might be the only sane people as we follow Jesus in the wilderness. The next thing that was said to Abba Arsenius is be silent. The call to be silent means that our presence is a vital part of our witness. Not just our words, not just the content that we can communicate, 
We live in a world that's filled with words, noise, and flashing lights. There is so much around us all the time, but it seems like people are constantly absent, constantly checked out, constantly distracted. What if we could find an inner silence that would actually allow us to be present with each other? What if our churches were places that were not filled with constant noise? What if there were places where people came together and could finally really see each other, be seen by each other, to really be with each other? It would be transforming. I love that this ancient community was called the desert mothers and fathers. It reminds me of when Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4, you have countless instructors in Christ but you don't have many fathers. Our world is filled with teachers and instructors. Content abounds, but what we so desperately need is connection. Connection far more than content. That's what mothers and fathers can offer. Being silent means having the capacity to listen and be present. What if our churches were places where people could finally be heard and hear for themselves? Simply listening to God and one another would absolutely transform the world. The last thing that Abba Arsenius was told is to pray always. Pray always. And I think that if we were to live in this way, that we would possess a kind of wisdom that cannot be found anywhere else. The desert mothers and fathers always offer timely wisdom. They say different things to different people at different times. People would come to them and say, give me a word. And they would give them something, but it would never be the same. And it's because they were able to discern the right word for that moment. John the Baptist does the very same thing. Luke chapter 3 shows different groups of people coming to John, each asking, what should we do? Crowds, tax collectors, soldiers, and he gives a different answer to each one of them. This wisdom and discernment is possible because of a life steeped in prayer. Because because the ears of, of them were tuned to the voice of their father. The church needs to be a place of wisdom and discernment. Ultimately, pray always shows us that ministry and life with God is not just part of what we do. It is everything that we do. The desert mothers and fathers show us whole lives consumed with God. And so I'll close with this, one of my favorite stories about the desert fathers, Abba Joseph and Abba Lot. One day, Abba Lot asked Abba Joseph, Abba, as far as I can, I say my little office. I fast a little, I pray, and I meditate. I live in peace as far as I can. I purify my thoughts. What else can I do? And then the old man stood up, stretched his hands toward heaven, His fingers became like ten lamps of fire, and he said to him, If you will, you can become all flame. 
are willing to embrace the wilderness, our whole lives can become flame, pointing to God in the middle of a world that so desperately needs it. May it be so.